I invite you to open your Bible in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in a very well-known passage, verses 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And the title of the message is, Taste and See the Greatness of Scripture. Taste and See the Greatness of Scripture. Hear the word of our God. Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the men of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let us pray again. Father, without the work of the Holy Spirit, we will see only letters. They even would make sense to us, but would not make any difference spiritually if your Spirit doesn't work in us. So please, please work mightily in our hearts at this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we have a society filled with hatred, violence, disobedience, greed, pride, self-love, arrogance, and lovers of pleasure than lovers of God. That's the same picture that you find here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. That was the description of Paul for our time, for his time, and for our time when it says in the last days. The last days is our time. It's the time of the first coming of Jesus and his second coming. That's the last time in the New Testament. And that's exactly what we, we find here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's a reference of a very depraved society and also sinful people in the leadership in the church. But Paul says here that Timothy should be different. Paul says that uh, these ungodly people that love more pleasure than love God should not be the description of Timothy. Actually, Timothy should be the opposite to make a difference in the church, and in the world. That's why Paul screams in this chapter and in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, he screams the expression, but you, but you. He says that in verse, he says that in verse 10, you, however, you see there, but you, you, however, Timothy, be different. And he says again in verse 14, when it says this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And that's a very interesting reference to Timothy's mother and grandmother. Today, as, as we remember our mothers, that's very important. It says for you to be 
to make a difference in this world. Remember how your mother taught, your, taught the scriptures. How your grandmother taught you that the scriptures are true. That here you find the wisdom for salvation in Jesus Christ. The importance of our mothers to bring certainty and assurance that what we have in hand is really the Word of God. And for us to make a difference, it begins at home. It begins with our dear mothers and grandmothers. And it says the same thing about you in verse 5 of chapter 4. It says the same thing. It's for you, but you. You see there the contrast? It says, you, Trinity, you are C. You see the world how it is? How is it upside down? Be different. Be completely different as a Christian. But for you to do that, you have to taste and see the scriptures that your mother taught you. The scriptures that your grandmother believed. You have to taste and see what they tasted and saw in the scriptures. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to open up our eyes and our senses to taste and see the greatness of Scripture. And the first thing that I, that I have to show you, that we have to taste and see, it's God's authority. So we're going to see God's authority or power. We're going to see God's advantage or profit um, in the Scriptures. And God's aim and purpose in the Scriptures. Scripture's authority and power, Scripture's advantage or profit, Scripture's aim and purpose. First, Scripture's authority or power. Verse 16, part A. All Scripture. What did Paul mean by this? All Scripture. Maybe you think, maybe only the Old Testament? Is that all? I don't think so. Probably Roman Catholics would think so, that Paul is referencing here just the Old Testament. But he had a mindset of the canon of the New Testament as well. For example, if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, 18, it says this. Just listen. For the scripture say, saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. So Paul is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. But he doesn't stop there. He continues to quote Scripture, and then he says this, and the labor is worthy of his reward. You cannot find that statement anywhere else in the Old Testament. You know where you can find that statement? In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 7. Paul already had the Gospel of Luke in his hands. And he's saying, that's a scripture just like Deuteronomy. So when he's saying, all scripture is not only the Old Testament, but Paul already had 
a New Testament canon mindset when he's saying all scripture here in 2 Timothy. And here's the source of scripture. All scripture of the Old and the New Testament is breathed out by God. It's God's breath. It's not something that uh, uh, you put your air inside your very lungs, but it's something that you put it out. You breathe out. It's what God did with Adam when he breathed out in his nose and he became a living soul. That's the same sense that you find here that the scripture is God breathe. It is God speaking, and he is the right sense, directly with you. Let me say that again. When you hear that all scripture is God breathe, it is in the sense that God is speaking directly with you when you read it. Let me put it another way. There is zero difference between God and His Word in that sense that I said. Zero difference. For example, if you disobey the Scripture, there's no difference that you are disobeying God. You see? There is zero difference in that sense that it is God breathed. It is the Word of God. And there is difference, zero, zero difference between God and His Word. To disobey God's Word, it is to disobey God Himself. But let me go deeper with this, because I think it will be helpful for us to contemplate, to taste and see God's Word and its greatness. Uh, what God says, Scripture says. And what Scripture says, God says. Have you noticed that in the Bible? It is. If you go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, or just listen to me. It says this. And the Scripture, says Paul, in Galatians 3, 8, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Do you see there in Galatians 3.8 says, the passage says, that scripture foresaw. Yes, the scripture foresaw, and that in thee shall all nations be blessed. But wait a minute. When we go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where Galatians 3.8 is quoting, the one who said that, that he foresaw something, it was God himself, audibly speaking to Abraham. It was not scripture. It was God himself, talking audibly with Abraham. But Paul in Galatians said that it was Scripture that said it. Do you see? What God says is Scripture says. Paul personifies the Scripture. Their personification is so great that if you note carefully, Paul makes a distinction between the Scripture and God. 
The Bible foresaw that God would do something, but was it not God who foresaw what he himself would do? The personification of Scripture, I think, is total when you see that in Galatians. He refers to the Bible as something that is alive, personal, and divine. And I think it is one of the most amazing things that Paul is not quoting from the Hebrew Bible in Galatians 3.8. He's quoting from a translation of the original Bible that he had in hand. The Septuagint in Greek. This means that God is speaking directly with you even in your English translation. The message is conveyed, it's transmitted as well. It isn't, I mean, isn't it amazing? If you believe that, if you believe that when Scripture says, God says, there is zero difference between them, then uh, in some sense, in that sense, not that, not that we're going to re- receive any new revelation now, but in the sense that God is speaking directly with us, we are just a Pentecostal, a charismatic in that sense. That God, when we open up the Bible, He's speaking directly with you as He spoke with Abraham. Let that truth sink in. Can you believe that? How can that be true and we do not open our Bible every day in our lives? How, young people, how, children, knowing that God speaks directly with us when we read the Scripture, how can we not, every day, every single day of our lives, how can we not read it? It is huge. Do you want to hear God's voice audibly? Then just read the Bible audibly. And then you hear God speaking directly with you by His Holy Spirit, if He, if he wills. But there's more. Another application. There is zero difference between God and Scripture because Scripture says, God says, as we saw here with Paul, but amazingly, God is worshipped and His Word is worshipped as well. His Word? Yes. Let me go quickly with this because there's so, so much here. In Psalm 56, verse 4 and 10, it says this. Psalm 56, verses 4 and 10 says this. In God, I will praise His Word. See, the, the direct object of the word praise is the Word of God. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. In God will I praise His Word. In the Lord will I praise His Word. The psalmist is praising God's Word. You see there. And you see the same truth in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. 13, 48 says this. 
And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, and now pay attention, and glorifying the word of the Lord. It's Old Testament and New Testament, you see the same truth. The word of God being worshipped by God's people. I think this is mind-boggling when I found this out. And I'm not saying that you have to worship a physical book. That's not the point at all. Because this will be destroyed. What you worship, what you see, the scripture saying that God is worshipped and His word is worshipped, is this. It's not only the second person of the Trinity that is the word of God, that became man, that's not the point either. The point is this. What we have is that it is an instance, a little bit of the mind of God the Father, of the mind of God the Son, and of the mind of God the Holy Spirit with us, revealed to us. Because otherwise we would never have the privilege to have a little bit of His mind. And that's what we worship. We worship the mind of God the Father, the mind of God the Son, and the mind of God the Spirit revealed to us. And when I thought about this, and when I was doing my meditation in Scripture, because I had that in mind, it came with a couple of passages, uh, people of God worshiping the mind of God. If you go, I know you remember this, in Psalm 139, Psalm 139, verse 17 says this. Listen to this. David worshiping God. In what sense? 139, 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Do you see what David is doing? He's worshiping the Word of God. The thoughts revealed to him, that's the word of God. Again, it's not the physical book, but the mind of God revealed to us that we have. The book will go away. Can you imagine all the Bible will go away? But his word will never go away. It's eternal. And that's exactly what we find here with David. But again, you see the same truth with Paul in Romans chapter 11, a very well-known passage. But many times I read this passage, but not think in that sense. Romans 11, verse 33 and 36, Paul is worshiping after contemplating the truth of God and his thoughts, and he cannot contain himself, but worship God's word. See this in verse 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known what? The mind of the Lord. Who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. He's worshiping the mind of God that was revealed to Him in Romans. Isn't it amazing? 
And that's one of the reasons why you are here today. Not only to worship by singing, not only to worship by praying, not only worshiping by giving, but worshiping by acknowledging and exalting the mind of God revealed to you through the scriptures preached to you. That's the high point of worship, isn't it? It is. It is the high point. It is amazing. But there is more implication and application for us when you see that God's power in His Word, the power of His Word, His authority is amazing. When you see that there is zero difference between His Word and Himself. Another application or implication of this truth is this, for you just to taste and see the greatness of Scripture. Is that where you find the doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility of the Scriptures. Because if there's difference, zero, between them, zero difference, then what God is, His Word is. And if God is perfect, if God cannot err, if God will ever err, will never err, will make a mistake, then that's the same nature of His Scripture. That's the basis for us to believe that what we have in hands in the Bible is completely true. Every word is inerrant and infallible because there is zero difference between His Word and God Himself. That's the application. That's why you, Christian, that's why your church, URC, believe that this is completely true and inerrant and infallible. Let me say it another way. If you have a low view of God, you will have a low view of Scripture. If you have a high view, the highest view of God, He is perfect, then you have the highest view of His Word, It is perfect. There's more. It is here where you find the ultimate authority. It is in the scriptures. Because there's there's nothing higher than the authority of God. And that is why His word is at the highest authority imaginable. And here, young people, you were going to college, university. I think that's one of the best arguments for a Christian to talk to someone who doesn't believe in the gospel or in the Bible. Has anyone come to you and say, prove that the Bible is true? How do you know that the Bible is true? How would you say to that person? What would you say to that person? The answer would be, because the scripture is the highest authority possible. It's the ultimate authority. It is unprovable. It is my indemonstrable, my indemonstrable principle. It is my starting point. It is the principle that I do not prove with anything else. 
Because it is my ultimate authority, because it's my highest authority, if I prove that the scripture is true with another thing, this other thing will be my ultimate authority. No. I begin with scripture by faith, knowing that it's true, and everything else is proved by scripture, but scripture is not proved by anything else. You see the truth implication that it is God breathed? It is God's breathing. It is our starting point. You see, if you, if you start to prove everything, nothing will be proved. If I prove A with B, then I'm going to ask, how do you prove B? I will prove with C. How do you prove C? I will prove C with D. How do you prove D? I will prove D and then to infinity. You have to start somewhere to build your philosophy of life, to build your concept of life. You have to start somewhere as your foundation and ultimate authority that you not, do not prove, but assume and believe that is true and then build everything else. That's not only with Christianity. That's true with every system of thought, with every philosophy that you can think of, or any religion. If someone is challenging you with the principle that you start believing that it's completely true, that person also has also a starting point that he or she cannot prove. Why should we do the same? For example, empiricism. How can you prove that your senses are reliable without using your senses? Can you do that? Can you? I know this, I am seeing this, but prove that what you see is true without your senses. I have to use my senses to prove that my senses are true. That's the same thing with reason. Prove that your reason is reliable without using your reason. You have to use your reason to prove that your reason is true. What we are saying here, that the way that you see that the Scripture is true is using Scripture. How do I know that Scripture is true? Go to Romans, go to John, go to Exodus. It is a self-authenticating truth that you find here. And I believe it's the most consistent truth of all. You see the implication? We can go on and on. But that's your ultimate authority. And not yourself as we we have nowadays. Self-reliance. I know this is true because I believe it. In myself. No. As a Christian, it's not in you that you have truth. It's outside of you here in Scripture. So see, taste and see the power and the authority of Scripture. Secondly, I want you to see here in the text the advantage or profit of Scripture. Taste and see its advantage and profit. It says this in verse 16b. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You see the first thing? You see four things here that are useful of Scripture, profitable of Scripture that Paul lists here. 
four things. The first one is instruction. Scripture, in Scripture, you find all necessary teaching to know God's will. And I, we can go in so many avenues here, but let me give you one instruction that's so, so central in all of Scripture. And I think it's unique. It is this. God must be the center of your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whatever you do, eat or drink it, do all to the glory of God. It teaches not only simply to change your behavior, but to reorient and center the entire heart and life on God. That's the center teaching of all Scripture. All the glory to Him. My whole life centers on God. But then the Scripture also repeats Give us reproof. It gives us reproof. Not only teaches the will of God for your life, but also show your failure to obey God's will. Now with that in mind, the center is to glorify Him. Then sin is not only to transgress God's law. It is that. But it's more than that. Sin is to center something or somebody in your life more than God. And I would say self-centeredness is our problem. As Augustine and Luther used to say, we are covered, curved in upon ourselves. Men and women are curved in upon himself or herself. Et a homo incurvatus in se in Latin. You are curved in yourself, always looking to yourself. That's why we sang... We sing uh, Psalm 115. Not to us, O O God, not to us, but all to you and to your glory. Because the main problem of men and women is that we are self-lovers more than anything else. That's That's the main problem of every human being. That's the cancer that spreads out in every soul in the universe, we are self-lovers. How can we escape that? That's the reproof of God. That's all the evil, all the suffering, all the problems that we have among us comes from that truth. But third, the Scripture improve and correct us. Scripture puts you back on track. It makes you realize you should put God in the center of your life. But how can you do that? How? And here's the answer. You can only escape yourself. You can escape from yourself. The only way that you can do that, escape from yourself, from your self-love, from your selfish, selfishness, from your me-ism, and everything related to you, the only way that you can escape from yourself that you believe that the salvation that Christ conquered on that cross was by sheer grace. Otherwise, you're going to try to do good works to be saved. The only result that you're going to get 
is more selfishness, more pride, more self-love. You see how amazing this scripture is? It is only the scripture that you find that truth. That is why the exclusivity of the gospel is not an arrogant claim. It is an inescapable claim. The only way for you to truly worship God, to escape from yourself, to destroy your self-love and selfishness and me-ism, the only way it is by sheer grace through Jesus Christ that you can truly worship God, being thankful to Him for what He did for you without your cooperation, without your good works, without anything that you can do or not do. Because that, that way, on that basis, if it was true that you can cooperate with anything, that will bring selfish again. And only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you trust in what Jesus has done can save you from yourself. And I challenge you, that's only found in the Scripture. Anywhere else you cannot find. Any philosophy or any religion will always bring more selfishness to your heart. That's the amazing truth of the gospel found in Scripture, you see? That's how it corrects us. But then it disciplines us in righteousness. It makes you examine yourself. It makes you keep worshiping God with your holy life through Scriptures to work in good works, not because, not for you to be saved, but because you were saved. You want to now to please Him and to live for Him and not for yourself because you know if you live for yourself, it is destruction. And only here they keep you on the track, discipline you in righteousness. Scripture brings you back to God when you sin, and you repent, and then you confess, and then you trust again in the grace of God. Do you realize what these four steps are? They are ingredients of change and faithfulness. True change and faithfulness. Scripture teaches first the lesson, then shows you the failure, correct you with the gospel, and keep you on track. It tells you you should worship God, then shows you worship, you worship created things, makes you worship God through the gospel, and then disciple you to keep living to God. Can't you taste and see that truth? It is so practical, isn't it? But lastly, and then we will end. The only, you, don't, you don't only see the power of Scripture and its authority. You not only see the profit and advantage of the Scripture with all the steps that we saw. But lastly, you see its purpose and aim. What is the purpose and aim of scripture that will show us the sufficiency of scripture verse 17 you see verse 17 says that or in order that that's the purpose of scripture in order that the, the man of god or the woman of god or the child of god may be complete and equipped for every good work you see in verse 17 you say, you have a preposition there in order that, to show the purpose of Scripture. What is the purpose? To show you complete, qualified, able to meet all demands. 
You see there, and also to be completely equipped. To be qualified completely and to be completely equipped for what? For some good works? For few good works? For certain good works? No. The text says, for every good work. The scripture equips and prepares the men and the woman of God for every good work. So the Bible qualifies you and equips you completely and fully to every good works. Then then this means that the Bible is sufficient for everything. For example, if I go to a soccer training uh, center where it equips me and provides everything I need to play soccer, like a ball, cleats, socks, jerseys, and teach me how to defend, how to have a skill, how to attack, how, how to to score or to defend, then that training center is sufficient for my practice of soccer. I don't need to go anywhere else. That's exactly what you find here in this text. Let me say it another way. The Bible is not a textbook, but the Bible is the textbook where all other textbooks depend The Bible equips you and trains you for every good work. Let me ask you this. Is science a good work? Can be a good work? The scripture equips you for science. Are politics good work? The scripture equips you for politics? Is math good works? Then scriptures equip, equip you for math. Is being a lawyer a good work? Or being a teacher, professor, doctor, nurse, physical therapist? Are those good works? The scripture is sufficient to equip you for all those things. It equips you for relationships, for children, for work, for money, for recreation, for science, for everything. And it's not only Paul that says this, but even the morning star of the Reformation, John Wycliffe, says this. All law, all philosophy, all logic, all ethics are in Holy Scripture. In Holy Scripture is all truth. Every Christian might, must study this book because it is the whole truth. Or Luther said this, said this. The scripture alone is the founder of all wisdom. The scripture alone must remain the judge and the master of all books. Whoever does not consult scripture will know nothing whatsoever. Nothing except, except the divine word must be the first principles for Christians. All human words are conclusions drawn from them and must be brought back to them and approved by them. Let me say another words. My quote in C.S. Lewis now. The proof of the truthfulness of the Bible is like the sun. Remember that, C.S. Lewis? He was talking about other things. But him applying to the scripture. C.S. Lewis said that the existence of the sun is not only perceived because I see it, but because through the sun I can see everything else. I would say that's similar what you have in the scripture. I don't only believe in scripture, that scripture is true because I see it, but also through scripture. I can make sense of everything else in life. That's what, we ha what you have in hand. 
That's a very bold claim, don't you think? Now let me give you an example. I'm not saying that you can find instruction here for computers. You cannot find here. I'm saying the underlying principles and the presuppositions for all knowledge you find here. For example, empirical science. What is the, one of the fundamental principles for empirical science to work? Is the truth of uniformity of nature. That what you have in the past will happen in the future. There is regularity in, the na in nature, in the world. Now, if you ask any scientist, how can he prove that the past will be like the future with other things? How can he prove that there will be regularity with the law of nature and everything that we experience in this world? How can we have the proof that the past will be like the future? That your heart beating will be the same in the future? That the sun that went down will, will go up the next day? No one can prove that. They assume the uniformity of nature in order to do science. But they, science, science itself cannot prove that truth. The uniformity and regularity of nature. They assume it is true without any basis. Do you know where you can find that basis? With the God who created everything. And said in Genesis 8:22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. You see the beauty of Scripture. The basis for uniformity of nature, the regularity that we see, that science has to presuppose and assume without proof, we have the justification in the Scripture for all knowledge or anything that you want to do with science. It is just mind-boggling. Can't you taste and see the greatness of the Scripture? Now let me conclude with this. You will never taste and see the greatness of Scripture, of scripture by your own effort unless you taste and see the Savior of scripture that your mother and your grandmother have been teaching you kids unless you taste and see the savior of this scripture unless you see that the gospel is the precondition for your salvation you will never see the greatness of scripture read with me verse 15 that says this and how from childhood hood from your mother and grandmother, Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Unless you taste and see that the gospel is authoritative, profitable, and sufficient for your salvation, you will never believe that the gospel is all authoritative, all profitable, and all sufficient. But let me ask you this. Don't you see that your heart is unwise for salvation? The opposite of what you read here in verse 15. Our natural heart and soul and mind 
are unwise for salvation. Let me tell you how your heart works, okay? How my heart works, and then you perceive that, and I hope you will taste and see the greatness of the gospel, and then we'll see the greatness of Scripture. Kids, don't lose this. Pay attention to me, and I want to conclude with this truth. How your heart works. First, you define for yourself a hell. Not a true hell, but a, a, a true hell that we see in Scripture, a biblical definition of hell. It's not what you think. You know, eternal torment. It's not, I'm not talking about this. But you define for yourself a hell, not defined by Scripture. You create your own concept of hell. So, for example, for you, hell is being single. Possible. For you, hell is being fat or too skinny. For you, hell is being ugly. For you, hell is to be alone, to be poor, to be stupid, not being appreciated, not being recognized. For you, I don't know, hell is not having a baby. For you, hell is not having someone you love. For you, hell is not being successful. For you, hell is not to have free time, have a lot of work, responsibilities. For you, hell is not to have a great marriage, have a terrible spouse. For you, hell is not having friends. So for you, you define hell for you in this world that you cannot live in. A hell that you must be delivered from and saved from. And then you find what? You want to try to find a false savior. A false god. A false deliverer. So... If you are single, you need to find a lover, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. They will be your savior. If you cannot have babies, then you need a baby to get out of your childless hell. If you cannot have friends, then you need a friend to save you from a friendless hell. If you are broke without money, you need money to rescue from your financial hell. If you worship success and fame, then work will deliver you from hell of insignificance. If you worship pleasure, comfort, entertainment, then sex, alcohol, parties, sports, movies, trips, video games will save you from the boring hell. If you worship approval, then applauses and recognitions will save you from the hell of rejection. Can you see yourself? Can I see myself? And once you get what you want, then your false Savior promise you what? Fulfillment, worth, happiness, dignity, sense of completeness. The false Savior takes you out of the false hell and put you in a false heaven. Then you start to do what? You start to worship this creator savior. You start to worship your family because no family is hell. You start to worship your work because poverty is hell. You start to worship friendship because loneliness is hell. You start to worship your boyfriend or your girlfriend because singleness is hell. And your false savior starts to have what? 
authority over you. Just like Pharaoh in Egypt. But can't you see this is unwise? This is silly. Do you know why? Because all of this salvation that I just described, all of them, you can be an atheist and you believe in this kind of salvation. And all of them are based on good works, on self-righteousness. All of them. Oh, if I were more beautiful. Oh, if I were more skinny. Or if I were more intelligent. Or if I, more, if I were richer. Or if I were more winsome, more important, more respected, more different, more popular, more talented, more lovely, more capable, more attractive. Then what you have to do is to work more, work harder to get those things. If I study more, if I eat less, if I exercise more, if I work harder, if I try more, then I will get there. Then I will be finally saved in this wretched world. But on this Mother's Day, this is sick. And we are tired of it. This is unwise. You define for yourself a hell. You choose a savior. You work very hard to, work, to worship your false savior to save from hell, from a false hell. Then at least two things happen. Two things. And you know already what it is. Pride and arrogance, if you get there. I work hard. And self-love. Selfishness. And it means them in pride is the result. Or, which is the case of most of us, try hard, try so hard to do to get there and never get it. And the result is depression and despair. Or if you get there, it's never sufficient. You have to keep on working to be up there in your, in your heaven. But listen to me. You will never get, you will never get true contentment with this false gospel, with this foolishness. But this Mother's Day is for you to go home this morning with good news. I have good news that your mother and your grandmother has taught you, have taught you. What good news? What is it, Pastor? You are not saved by your works to please your false gods. But you are saved by the incarnate word. By his work. By his life. By his death. By his resurrection. And the internal word saves you from the arrogance and despair. The word that became flesh humbles you because you know you cannot please God by yourself. You cannot accomplish anything by yourself. The living word destroys your pride. But at the same time, the everlasting word, Jesus Christ, gives you boldness and confidence because you are loved, accepted, and received by God. Not through your performance, not through your own work, but through Christ's performance. You have everything. And on the basis of this sheer grace, now you are able to do good works. 
Now you want to be a better father, to be a better mother, to be a better grandmother, to be a son, to be a worker, to, to do your career, to do everything, not to be saved. Because you were saved by sheer grace. But the one who did everything, who lived a life that you could not live and died a death that you could never die and loved you forever, an eternal love, and that you give you balance, humbles you, but at the same time keep you boldness to have access to God on the basis of, of Christ's work. What a gospel! How can you be indifferent to that truth? How can you be so cold to that truth? How can you not scream hallelujahs and worship your God every day of your life? What a balance. Then you can have kids now, spouse, friends, work, everything, not to make yourself gods, but to recognize that they are good gifts from you. Do you see? Do you taste? Do you taste that because of the gospel, now you are able and equipped to every good work through the scriptures and make you wise for salvation? Oh, taste and see the greatness of scripture. Taste and see the greatness of the gospel. Because the gospel is not only for those who do not believe yet, Especially for us Christians. To believe it and trust it every day. And especially now. On Mother's Day. Mothers, grandmothers. Teach your kids this gospel. And let us. Let us fight. For the kingdom of our Lord. Who died for us. To save us from true hell. And bring us the arms of the Father. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for the gospel. Let us see the beauty of this gospel in the beauty and the wonder of Scripture. And for us to make a difference in this world, to be different in all the problems that we see in this world, as Paul began in this chapter of 2 Timothy 3. Open up our eyes, please help us. And help us for this evening so that we can have a deja vu, a see again the truth of the resurrection of our Savior. In his name that we pray, amen.